My name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor here. We're glad to have you with us this morning. We're continuing our journey through the book of James. It's our third installment here. Uh, we're in James chapter 1, verse 26, all the way through chapter 2, verse 13. It's printed for you in the ESV translation on page 9, and then there's a, a children's version on the next page. We'll be referring to both of those throughout the sermon. You want to keep those handy for you there. So the story so far in the book of James has been first thing we saw right out of the bat is he told us to count trials as a joy. We saw that trials are opportunities for growth. They prove genuine faith. And so we're supposed to pray not for the trial to end, but pray for wisdom in the trials. Second thing he told us then was that the gospel changes us into people whose very lives show the way the world should be. It's a rather famous phrase, commonly translated, be doers of the word. It's literally be poets of the logos. It's this idea that we are the connection between the way the world should be and the way the world is, that he has made Christians that connection. And so we live out through the gospel the way the world should be, rather than being a hearer only or an auditor of a class with no skin in the game who, don't, who doesn't participate. We participate. We get involved. Now what James is going to do in this passage is he's going to expand on this idea. He's going to expand on what it means to be a poet or a doer of truth. I want to remind you where we ended last week with verse 25. It says this. It ended with, be a doer who acts and be blessed in your doing is the ESV translation. It's kind of esoteric. My, my translation would be, be a productive poet who will be blessed in his poetry. Again, still kind of esoteric. And the great thing about it is, as you're reading through the scriptures on your own, is the, the Bible never gets us to a thing where it, it kind of gives us a principle or it gives us an idea and just kind of leaves it to our creativity to figure out what that means. If you'll keep reading, it will always define that. And James does that here. This passage today, he's going to define that stuff. He's going to show us practically what it means to be poets in action or what, what being blessed in our poetry looks like. So if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word today, starting in James chapter 1, verse 26. <clears throat> if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. 
For those who whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together. How gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us to our own creativity, to our own thoughts on what does it mean to, to be someone who is a doer of your truth, who is a, who is a poet of Jesus. Instead, Lord, you're going to show us. You're going to show us your heart. You're going to show us your heart for the world and your heart to see people set free in your son, Jesus. And so we ask, Father, you would open this text up to us. Show us that again today. Show us our need of this gospel, Lord. And show us the beauty of the forgiveness offered in Jesus. We ask you would do this, Lord, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So our theme for today, we're going to kind of the big picture we're holding everything over is this. Jesus' poets live out the change he's bringing. He's put this change into us by his gospel. He expects us to live it out. That's what it means to be one of his poets. So we're going to jump right in. James shows us a partial world. He, he begins with this word that the New Testament rarely uses. He jumps in by saying religious. If you think you're religious, and it means exactly what you think it means. James is a Jewish Christian writing to Jewish Christians. And their mindset very often we know from the other, other books was to see the gospel as something to do, an, an, an activity in which to engage. Like many of us in church world, we're tempted to see Christianity as primarily about religious performance, activities, attitudes, voting patterns, rather than a new identity as a poet of Jesus. But James comes along and wants us to see that Christianity is a change of the entire person. It's not a jumping through hoops of moral behavior or religious practices. James just point blank says it. Such a religion made up of mere external practices is worthless. And to help us get that, he gives us an illustration of the tongue. James is a big fan of that word. He's, he doesn't mean it like literally. He means like languages. He means speech. He means talking. And he tells us in verse 26 that be careful of your tongue. But then notice what he says there. He says, if you don't bridle your tongue, you deceive your heart. Which is weird if you really follow along. How, 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 is, an, how is uninhibited speaking a deception of our own heart? Well, what James is getting at here is this is not what we say to others. This is what we say to ourselves. This is how we deceive ourselves with our tongue, how our self-talk messes us up. Taken in context from last week, we see this glorious, expansive truth that we are called to be Jesus' actual poets. Not English poet, but an ancient Greek, a Roman poet was this person who was given creativity. They were seen as those who were the bridge between the unseen world and the real world. They were given honor because they could speak in ways that no one else could. That we are those people. We're the, we're the bridge between the world that God is bringing and the world that is. We're his poets and we've been born again through his ultimate reality in Jesus Christ. We're now representatives of that reality to the planet. We get that beautiful truth, and in our brains, 
we talk ourselves out of it. We live in verse 26 and we deceive our own hearts and we get into this default of a passive Christianity instead of being these active poets and we become religious consumers. What James calls auditors, hearers from last week. That's deceiving our own hearts. So to help us get this, James come, comes along in verse 27 and is like, stop doing that. Let's all look together at verse 27. What does he say? It says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Here's the answer. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. To keep oneself unstained from the world. I got to admit, when I get to that, I was like, yeah, but isn't there more? I want something more profound than that. I want, that sounds so simple. See, I deceive my own heart with my self-talk. It can't be that simple. I have to do something complicated. But how would they have read this? Pure, undefiled, unstained, that sacrifice language. Before they confess Jesus as Lord, these Jewish Christians reading this letter annually would leave wherever they were in the Roman Empire and they would travel to Jerusalem to make an annual sacrifice. And that sacrifice had to be pure. It had to be undefiled. It had to be unstained. James is saying all of the efforts you took to get that sacrifice there in Jerusalem, that's the care and effort you should now take to be a poet of Jesus. To really live out the change he has put into you. And so what James is going to do here, he's going to zoom in on two big foibles he knows we Christians have. The first foible is this, to visit widows and orphans. Visit here means to look in on, to care, to be aware that they exist, to do something about. Now to a Jewish mindset, that phrase, widows and orphans, is all over the Old Testament. And it came to be a phrase that meant the helpless of the helpless, the, the most downtrodden, those who needed help the most. There was no government or social safety net in ancient Rome. And one of the ways that the Christians were poets of God's reality, we know they took James very seriously, is in the first two centuries, they became that safety net. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ became that social safety net. Now, I know that sounds like social justice, but hold on. You, know, you have to take that up with the early Christians. I wasn't there. But, here's, but we know what they did, right? They cared for the poor. They rescued abandoned infants. They would actually leave their houses, and they would set up tents at the, at the city dumps because that's where people would come in the middle of the night and dump their unwanted children, primarily little girls, and they would take them, and they would raise them. Because they, they thought it was precious. They did not want to see that cast away. They established hospitals. To this day, the reason so many hospitals are associated with the denomination is it goes back 2,000 years. It was the Christians who established hospitals. They provided food. They provided bread all across the Roman Empire. You didn't have to be a Christian for them to take care of you. In fact, around 360, when one of the early persecutions was really getting up and running, the emperor Julian wrote to one of the priests of the official state religion, which wasn't Christianity, and he basically says in this letter, get out there and help more people because the Christians are beating us at this. They're winning because they're helping more. You can actually look this up. I'll just give you one sentence from this very long letter where he calls this guy out. The Emperor Julian says this. He says, It is disgraceful when the impious Galileans, what he called Christians, support our poor in addition to their own. He's like, stop doing that. Get out there and help some more people so the Christians won't win. See, these early Christians, they knew that a world was coming one day, someday, where there was no sickness, 
There was no infanticide. There was no hunger. There was no disease. And so they lived as the down payment on that world in their world. They were poets of Jesus in their world. They were seeking to make that coming world a reality in this world. Now, James is going to get into caring for the poor a lot more later in his letter. He's kind of just addressing it as a main point. And then he's going to get to a second point he's going to address first. And he's going to camp out there today. And let's look at that other point. What is it he says there at the end of verse 27? Poets of Jesus keep themselves unstained from the world. Now, I grew up in church world, so I know all about what it means to not be worldly. Okay, let me help you out, okay? It means wear a tie. Uh, it means use your yes ma'ams, use your no ma'ams. It means, you know, um, don't watch any TV unless it's about a widow sheriff in a small North Carolina town. That's, that one's okay. Um, it means don't smoke, drink, or chew, or date girls who do. And of course it means don't ever cuss, right? That's what it means. Right? Polish up that veneer, get it nice and shiny, get that new Christian smell in there. And don't be worldly. That's what it means. That's not exactly what James says here. Remember very quickly, just very quick, remember our, our lesson we did last week in kind of the background worldview to most of the Roman Empire at this point, that Mediterranean basin? I know, we'll, we'll do this real quick. Remember those three Greek words from last week? Give a quick, quick reminder. We got chaos, we got cosmos, and we got logos, right? So chaos is incapable of, of sustaining life. Cosmos is what we live in right now, the world. It's capable of sustaining life, and the difference is it has this thing called the logos, the Logos was this idea of this organizing principle, this organizing energy, what brought life to chaos and turned it into a cosmos was the Logos. The Apostle John in his gospel has the audacity to talk to this world and say, yes, in the beginning was the Logos and the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. He actually has the audacity to say that thing that your whole worldview is based on is Jesus. And so the Christians come along and they say, yes, what makes the world different? Why we don't have a chaos, why we live in a cosmos is because we have Jesus. God has brought Jesus to speak life into the chaos of sin and death. And last week we're told that we're his poets of that ultimate reality. And here's why I'm bringing this up again. If, you, if that's real quick, if you need to hear this more, I spent much more time last week on it, or we can have coffee. I'll tell you more about this. But here's why I'm bringing it up again here. When he says, keep yourself unstained from the world, he says, keep yourself unstained from the cosmos. So you're the poets of the logos overcoming the chaos of sin and death right here in the cosmos, but don't let it infect you. So all those things I kind of facetiously said, they're actually part of it. But they're not the whole part, right? This is a system of thinking. This is a system of being says, don't let that system infect you. You're a poet of the Logos living in the cosmos. Don't do it. But again, he doesn't leave it up to our creativity. Like, okay, that's kind of esoteric. I guess I can figure that out. He tells us exactly what it looks like. Look with me at verse one. Here's his specific application. He says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord of glory. Partiality. Favoritism. Tribalism. In some contexts, racism. James says we are worldly. Not when we watch popular TV shows, but when we show partiality. That's rough, isn't it? It's a lot easier to give ourselves a diet on TV than to actually address the partiality in our hearts. It comes so naturally to us, doesn't it? It's a comfort zone. 
right? I mean, we like those who are like us. It's just easier. And those who aren't like us, it's harder. And so we just kind of naturally drift to the easier relationships. Poets of Jesus take efforts to know, let's go to the hard places. Let's get with difficult people. Let's get with the different people. He says, get that default setting of partiality out of the church, is what he's saying here. And that little phrase that he tacked on at the very end, the Lord of glory, kind of helps us understand the heart that partiality comes from. I I love the uh, early 20th century short story writer named O. Henry. Many of you may have, around Christmas time, heard his uh, his, uh, funny little short story called The Gift of the Magi, about the broke young couple who he buys her some expensive hair clips because she has this beautiful hair and she sells her hair to buy him a beautiful watch fob. Remember that? He loves to do these ironic twist things. And one of his short stories is called The Social Triangle. And it opens up with this really poor guy named Dale who has no hope. He has no job. It's 1920s era New York City. And he is like the poorest of the poor. He lives with his mom and his sister. And they all hate each other because they got no hope and no money. And so they got nothing to do but just yell at each other. Miserable, miserable life. But he has an idol. And his idol is basically the local union boss. He's the guy who stands there and makes sure that whatever happens, it doesn't happen. What died it go go through the union? He's that guy. So the accent and everything, I don't even get a chuckle. Seriously? There we go. Thank you. Okay. So, anyway, so the thug guy, 1920s thug, not 2020 thug, not, okay, no partiality. Um, he gets to, Dale gets to meet him, and he's so happy that he got to meet his idol. He got to meet his hero, and he walks away just fulfilled and satisfied. Story shifts to the thug guy, and it turns out he's just a small-time crook, little union boss in this area, and, but he has dreams and aspirations. He wants to meet one of the big, rich guys. It turns out, like, the rich, rich guy who lives in the penthouse is hosting a luncheon that day, and so this guy does everything he can to get there. He and his wife showed up, and they're dolled out in their best stuff, and it's very obvious the way he writes it that they're still clearly out of their league being at this luncheon but he's so excited to be there and he goes and he gets to meet the rich guy super excited he gets to meet his idol and he's just so fulfilled and so happy he walks away then the story shifts to the rich guy and on his way home he's just unfulfilled like i got all this money i don't i want to do something with it i don't just want to sit here and enjoy luxury i want to help people and just on a whim he has a chauffeur take a, a right down this alley goes down this dark alley he's like i have money i could clean this place up i could help out and he sees this guy standing there in the middle of the day just bedraggled poor smoking a cigarette and he, he jumps out and goes i'm gonna help you we're gonna be friends i'm gonna clean this place up and he shakes his hand and he walks away and he's so excited he's like I, I finally met a real person i can't believe it he feels so good and he has shaken the hand of dale it's come full circle and i love how O. henry captures that each man was looking to their association with the other man to give them meaning to give them significance to give them glory. See, that thirst for glory is in all of our hearts, and this story shows it. And that's why James puts that little phrase, the Lord of glory. Because if we don't, if we're not grounded in Jesus, we'll take that glory thirst to other people and we'll show partiality to those we think we can get glory from, and we'll show partiality away from those who can't give us glory. See, if we're not grounded in the gospel, If we haven't bridled our interior tongue when it lies to us about the gospel, we will look for glory in other places instead of the Lord Jesus who gives us glory. We'll seek significance from others, which causes us to show partiality. I feel less than. Whatever situation, you know that feeling. All of a sudden, you feel less than. 
but then treating others with partiality. Favoritism makes me feel greater than. James says, that's being worldly rather than a poet. See, the impetus for showing partiality, James tells us, he gets to the heart of it. It's our thirst for glory. But if we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory for our worth, for our significance, then we won't show partiality towards others in this partial world. Now, James takes us next to show us the two big ways that we do this partiality thing. First is kind of external, and the other one's internal. So the external one is we kind of have this attitude of my people are better than yours, starting in verse 2. He gives us this great example we can totally see happening. Let's all look at the kids' version of verses 2 through 4. And here's the setup he gives us. He said, look, if a guy with fancy clothes comes to church, followed by a guy in torn-up dirty clothes, and, and you put the first guy in the best seat and the second guy on the floor, haven't you shown everybody that Jesus is for certain people but not for others? See, James uses a very easy example from their culture. Their culture made objective distinctions. They still had this idea of the nobility and the, and the, and the regular people. The rich were an actual better quality of person than the poor. And here the church comes along from the very beginning and says, no, we're not like that. We treat everybody as made in God's image, worthy of part of his glory. We have to be careful because our culture does that too. We have, we have different values we favor those who act like us, who think like us, and most importantly, we favor those who are what we want to be like. We treat those people differently. That's how the world works. And James is saying, don't be like the world that way. Don't bring that junk into the church. And we, and we're, we're, we think we're really good at that. But verse 4 tells us that partiality is discrimination. And when we do it in the church, it's a sin. And we do it in very subtle ways in the church. You know how you do it. So we rank ourselves, right? Let's just say Christianity is a scale of 1 to 10. I don't even know what that means, but you know you do it. And you, let's say you, and you look at yourself, you're like, well, I mean, I, I want to be humble. So I'm like a 7, right? And so if you're talking to someone who you think's an 8 or a 9, you're like very, you're, you're, you're very kind. You're not quite obsequious. We're Americans. We don't do that. But maybe you're like, you know, you, you, you kind of def, defer to them and you think a lot about them. And you, you hopefully maybe people will think better of you if you hang around this person. But then you get to somebody who you like, you look at them and you judge them as like a 4 or a 5. And you're like a 7. You're, why are you even talking to me? Go read your Bible more. We're never that, we're never that, that, that blatant about it right we're much more subtle but we do this don't we you can, and take it out of the church put it in anything you rank yourselves at something and the people who are above you you're nicer to and the people who are below you you're not we all do that i know i'm not the only one so don't, don't act like i am okay we do that that's partiality and we do it to make ourselves feel more valuable because we're thirsty for glory in our chest it's we want to feel important I love here how James' partiality discussion is robust. He doesn't just go, well, you shouldn't do that because it's bad. If you read closely, what does he say? He, goes, he said, showing partiality is a denial of the gospel. You cannot actually believe the gospel and show partiality. It's like that old Sesame Street ditty, right? One of these is not like the other. Can you tell me which one? Partiality is so living in the cosmos. It's worldly. It's not what Jesus' poets do. It's what auditors, hearers of the word only do, not Jesus' poets. And we all have that tendency towards our comfort zones. We all do this. We're prone to set up discrimination as religion. And James shows us that the cure for it is the gospel. 
He tells us this in verse 5. I'm not sure if there's a slide, but you can look on page 9. Look at verse 5 with me. It says this. It says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? James comes along and says, why are you looking for glory from people when you have the glory of being the adopted sons of the king? His glory is all the glory you need so we don't have to discriminate because he fills up our glory tank so we don't have to thirst for glory. See, Jesus poets believe that reality and they live out that reality. Our birthright in Jesus makes us the most blessed of all people, James tells us. And then he says we're heirs of the kingdom. Again, we think that's just a rhetorical device, but to them, it meant something very specific. In the Roman world, you could actually choose your heirs. In fact, you had to choose your heirs. It didn't automatically go to your eldest son. It went to whoever you wanted to. And it was more often than not, it actually went to someone outside of your family. And so a rich person choosing an heir was a big deal, and they got this. James comes along and says, we don't show partiality to others. Because God has already been so kind to us to make us heirs, to make us feel good, to give us meaning. We don't have to make ourselves feel better by showing partiality because he's made us heirs through Jesus. See, partiality is based on insecurity. And so when we walk in the security of the gospel, the truth that we are actually God's heirs in Jesus Christ, that what is his, he gives to us lavishly. We won't show partiality. See, the gospel believed can end that junk. Instead of idolizing a certain type of person, longing for a bit of their glory, poets of the Lord Jesus worship Jesus and rest in his glory. See, the cosmos, the world says my people are better than yours. Jesus poets say, no, Jesus is better, period. And in him, he makes us better. So that's how we show it kind of externally. Here's how we do it internally. Instead of saying, well, my people are better than yours, we say, my struggles are better than yours. James here kind of builds on his metaphor of saying we're heirs of the royal king. He says, now, here's how you live out the royal law. Now, i got to stop right there. To an English audience in 2020, and I'm, I'm with you, when we hear the word law, we think like police, judges, tickets, fines, you know, do this, don't do that, getting slapped, bad things you have to obey or you get in trouble. That's not how they understood the idea of law. They understood law as in the instruction manual. The creator has given the instruction manual for the human life, and it's called the Torah. That's law. We think it's a bunch of do's and don'ts. They say, no, it's instruction. So God comes along here and James says, he gives us the royal instructions. You're children of the king. Here's your royal instructions. Here's how you do it. In other words, hey, religious types who are so proud about being right. Don't forget that part of being right is loving your neighbor as yourself. Remember that part? See, in the context of discriminating, in the context of showing partiality, we love our neighbor as ourselves by going as easy on their sins as we do on our own. You know we do that, right? We show partiality. Well, my, my struggles are, are hard, but I don't struggle in that area. So when I see someone struggling in that area, I judge them as weak, evil, because I don't struggle that way. These Jewish Christians, 
he's writing to, they looked out on their culture and they were repulsed by it. Like many of you have confessed you are today, your culture. Roman culture was profoundly filthy to a Jewish person. And they had this instinct, and we know this from the rest of the New Testament, they had this deep instinct to basically use God's law, the instructions, to try to get people to clean up first and then come and hear about Jesus. But you're just so bad, you can't even come hear about Jesus. And we got to be careful because we religious types, we do that today too, don't we? There's a deep impulse in us that will clean up first and then come hear about Jesus. Because this is a place for kind, decent people. We don't want to have you know, those really bad people in here because they're just so bad. That's how they thought. And James comes along and says, that's not the gospel. The gospel is for unclean, filthy sinners like us. These Jewish believers had to be transformed by the gospel before they could reach their filthy culture because they were being worldly by putting the same partiality on others. That had to be cleaned up. See, James shows us what partiality really means or discrimination really means here in a religious setting. It comes with an attitude of their sins are worse than my sins. And you know we do this. You've heard this. Hopefully you haven't said it, but you've heard it, right? If God doesn't do something about America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, we've heard that. Right, right. First of all, it's like ignore the blasphemy there because like, wow. Um, but second of all, um, no. Okay, you know, the world has yet to see a culture as immoral, profane, sexually repugnant, as cruel as ancient Rome. Not even close. Not even close. And God destroyed that culture, not with judgment, but with 11 dudes in the gospel. See, Christians thinking that the evil is more out there than in here is showing partiality, James tells us. And as a good pastor, he won't let his people get away with thinking that. Well, or, or thinking that, well, you know, if partiality is a sin, come on, it's a little one compared to whatever your issue is. And James comes along and says, no, it's a big deal. I mean, even right now, those of you who are still tracking with me, you're kind of thinking, why is James spending so much time on partiality? Why doesn't he get to the big stuff, man? The big sins out there. Because we don't think partiality is as bad as the Bible does, do we? See, verse 10 helps us, comes along and says, well, um, your little sins are big deals. God requires total obedience, no exceptions. We rank sin and try to avoid the biggies, thinking God's okay with that. That's partiality. Verse 11 comes along and tells us, well, our little sin of partiality makes us guilty of violating God's instructions completely, just as if we did one of the biggies. And so the solution is found in verse 12. He, said, he comes along and says, be a doer of the word, be a poet of Jesus, speak and act as if we are to be judged by God's freedom instructions, what he calls the law of liberty. Live out the freedom of being a child of God. We're to live out this idea that we're under God's smile so we don't have to show partiality to feel like we're important, like we matter. We're empowered in the gospel not to show partiality. And to make sure we get it, he puts verse 13 in there to scare us. Let's look at verse 13. What does he do? He comes along and says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. When we show partiality... We are denying mercy to another and bringing ourselves under judgment, he says. 
And this is gut check time. I mean, this, this text, I got to tell you, this week was a rough week for Sean. I did not like this. More than once, I wanted to throw the Bible against the wall. I'm like, no, I'm going to do something happy. Because we do play favorites. We have been stained by the world. We have ignored God's instructions. We have not been Jesus' poets. We fail. Our religion is worthless by the standards he lays out here. And in our hopelessness, we get to that point where we're ready for the good news. At the end of verse 13, what's the good news? We're under judgment, but guess what, folks? Mercy triumphs over judgment. God treats us better than we treat others. Jesus triumphs over our judgment because he underwent the judgment our partiality deserves. The condemnation we deserved, he took for himself. We're all widows and orphans before a holy God. We're helpless and we're hopeless, but Christians have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. God didn't tell us to sit on the floor because we're unworthy. Rather, in the gospel, he embraced us as his children, adopted us as his own, made us his heirs, and let us share in his glory. And in the ultimate act of loving his neighbor, Jesus came to us to be our neighbor in order to love us out of judgment and into his mercy. Oh, that's the gospel. Oh, dear flock, do you know this gospel? You know, when you get this simple gospel, when you get this, it really does give us wisdom for our current cultural moment. Because ultimately, this simple truth of Christianity right here is a powerful tool for evangelism today. Instead of getting all caught up in critical race theory, we're getting all worked up over social justice activism run amok. Recognize that that really is people made in God's image who hate partiality as much as he does. And they're just grabbing a really bad tool. I mean, you, you do realize that, right? If the Bible is true, we're all made in God's image. And part of that image is we tend to hate things God hates and like things God likes. But sometimes we're really bad at, at expressing that. So what we can do is we can come alongside someone like that, and instead of judging their politics, we can compliment their theology. Try it. Because we know that God hates partiality too, because we've just went through James. See, James shows us that Jesus has called his people, his poets, to live out their faith by eschewing partiality. And he has empowered us to do it. And he died to forgive us for all the times we fail to do it. Man, their critical race theory can't die for them when they fail it. Social justice activism can't die for you when you mess up. What do you do? You get canceled. But instead, we can show them here's something that addresses what you have. And here's the tool to actually fix it. In other words, if we do it right, instead of having a debate, it should end with them wanting the gospel to be true because it's the world that they want to see. That's being Jesus' poets in the cosmos. Instead of being worldly and saying, well, you believe in that, you're more evil than I am. I'm not even going to engage. That's being worldly. Whereas poets jump right in there and bring the truth of God to the situation. That's the poetry Jesus calls us to bring to the world. Oh, dear flock, be Jesus' poets by his grace. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, sometimes believing the Bible's hard. 
It would be so much easier if we got to judge the text instead of the text judging us, Lord. Father, we ask that you would do your work in our hearts even now, Lord. Would you bring conviction and change, Lord? We are partial people. We are so comfortable with those that are like us, and we are so uncomfortable with those who are different. Lord, we, we do. We show partiality. Would you forgive us? And by your Spirit, would you help us to walk as you have told us to walk as poets of Jesus, bringing about the change that you're bringing in the gospel, Lord? It's hard. Would you show us the beauty of Jesus and help us be agents of that beauty in an ugly place? Lord, we ask that as Jesus Christ has been shown to be crucified for sinners and raised to bring us new life and joy, that you would do your work of calling people to yourself. Even now, Father, would you bring those who are dead to life, that they might confess and believe in Jesus as Lord. In whose name we pray. Amen.